KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we're talking about the rapid advancements in artificial intelligence and the ethical concerns. I'm Jade Heinzman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. We'll explore how AI is impacting our lives and what's possible in the future. And in that sense, generative AI has truly captivated people's attention in terms of what is the uh, art of the possible now. Plus, we'll talk about the ways it could change how we work and whether its use is for the good or the bad. There are a number of different industries that are radically changing in the face of various types of AI, particularly generative AI. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. It's been nearly one year since ChatGPT released and opened our eyes to a new world of technology. The world of generative AI made big leaps this year, much of it coming from companies in California, some in San Diego. ChatGPT and tools like it allow for human-like conversations, opening up new possibilities for life and work. Meanwhile, tech companies continue to expand the limits of AI. But along with the rise of this new technology also comes concerns about AI's potential power. Here to talk more about it is Durga Malati, Senior Vice President at Qualcomm. Durga, welcome. Really glad to be here. Glad you're here. Also, Darby Vickers joins us. She is a professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego. Darby, welcome to you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So Durga, how do you define AI today? We are at a transformative moment uh, in the industry in terms of uh, AI being far more pervasive in terms of different kinds of devices that it will eventually permeate into. In that sense, what started off as chatbots or, you know, what really caught everyone's attention with chat GPT, where people would ask questions and get responses, which are quite amazing, to be honest, just looking at the depth and the quality of the feedback that comes back. The possibility of doing all of that sort of AI-based use cases in devices that you and I use on a daily basis, it's quite something. And so in that sense, we believe that uh, it's a truly transformative uh, moment in the industry uh, from an overall generative AI standpoint. Lots more to talk about it, but that's exactly where we are right And Chat GPT and other similar tools are called generative AI. So can you explain what generative AI is uh, as opposed to other types of AI? When we think of uh, artificial intelligence as a field, it's actually quite old, to be honest. In fact, it dates back all the way to the 1950s. And for those of us who've been following the history of AI in terms of what it has done over the decades, it's gone through different moments where... uh, 
it's uh, made some pretty spectacular promises then coming down in terms of some of the more realistic expectations in the industry. But I believe that uh, in the last 10 years or maybe 15 years or so, uh, it's truly started to make a difference in terms of people's lives. Every time you use your camera and a smartphone, for instance, uh, edit your pictures, uh, take much better quality pictures, make uh, uh, any kind of other modifications. Turns out we actually use AI for that. Whenever we have any kind of a voice assistant that we've used in the last five years or so, turns out that we've been using AI there as well. But what's really changed people's perception about AI is a more recent uh, phenomenon, which is about generative AI. Now, generative AI in that sense, just by the name itself, says that using AI, we are able to generate uh, new things. This could be new images, new text, new voice samples that haven't really been seen before. This is not about data that already exists. It's truly creating uh, something new. This is brand new data that comes across. And in that sense, when you ask a question, for instance, you get a response which is specifically tuned towards the question that you ask, and that's uses generative AI, so that's just language processing. And uh, that's what caught people's attention uh, two, three years back. But today, when we talk of generative AI, this is not just about getting answers to a question that you ask, but it can generate anything. You can ask for um, a specific picture or a portrait in a certain style, and that's what gets generated. You might take a picture of yourself and say, can I have the same picture in a Monet-style painting that gets generated? It's brand new. It's never existed before. When you ask a question which is on, send me the meeting notes that I took from two weeks back with a specific person and create and draft that into an email, that's what you get as an answer. These are some pretty powerful use cases uh, which go span both consumer use cases to productivity use cases. And in that sense, generative AI has truly captivated people's attention in terms of what is the uh, art of the possible now. And from that standpoint, you know, the natural next step to start thinking about is where else can generative AI uh, make a difference? And it turns out that today, the possibilities are endless, from medicine to education to uh, Internet of Things, in your smartphone, making it into a truly an AI phone, and of course, into automobiles with uh, autonomous driving. Wow. So Darby, there's a lot of uses, it sounds like, for AI. But as a philosophy professor, your focus on AI is not on the development of the technology, but more about some of the potential ethical implications that come with it. Why do you feel exploring the ethics behind AI is so important? I think it's really important to look at the ways in which AI can be both incredibly helpful and beneficial to all of us, um, as in some of the uh, use cases mentioned, um, but also can be incredibly harmful. Um, and uh, as a lot of people have argued, the technology itself can be used in a variety of ways for good or bad. Um, and not only that, but the development of the technology uh, can be done well or poorly in terms of the types of outcomes that it generates. So, for example, a lot of the uses of artificial intelligence right now involve models 
of risk assessment that can be used from anything uh, from thinking about whether or not you should get a mortgage to thinking about whether or not you should be allowed out on bail um, and what kind of bail should be set, like so what your risk of recidivism is. And all of these have uh, in an incredible impact on your life because they're making real decisions that, of course, a person is implementing, um, but the AI is making a decision about something that's going to greatly affect you. And so the challenge here is, are those models accurately assessing the risk? And if they're not, uh, what kind of recourse do you have um, to deal with technology like that? In addition, there are all sorts of ethical implications um, about the way that this technology is being developed and the algorithms are being trained. Yeah. I mean, you know, aside from the, the biases that AI can carry, hopefully AI can evolve beyond that. But um, even more so, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how AI can really help humanity. Um, because, you know, I mean, is your thought that capitalism could stand in the way of that? Absolutely. So the there's some really incredible use cases um, of how te AI technology can be incredibly helpful. So in environmental conservation, um, you now can get AI to recognize individual animals um, for biodiversity statistics uh, off of a, a camera that's set up. And you don't have to have a grad student putting in you know, hundreds of hours trying to catalog the individual animals so you can do that kind of work. In addition, uh, AI can be used to be incredibly helpful for, um, say, reading uh, signs to people who have uh, visual impairments. Um, and there are all sorts of, sort of incredible cases that can be used to help people out. But the economic incentives just aren't there um, in our current economic system for uh, companies to try to be developing those sorts of great use cases of AI. Um, rather, the economic incentives tend to be in you know, things like these large language models. There have been huge numbers of uh, deals that have been made. There was an $11 billion deal made between OpenAI and Microsoft um, to bring some of the generative AI into the uh, Microsoft Office platform. And the problem is that there's a lot of testing that still needs to be done um, that people aren't, you know, considering. Uh, Microsoft, there was a news article that said that they got rid of or sort of reshuffled a lot of their ethics team um, right before they made that decision. And there's so much money at stake um, in some of these kinds of deals that uh, it's really difficult to figure out whether those incentives are in the right place to get AI moving us in the right direction. Now, I have high hopes that we can do incredible things with this technology and really help people. But uh, there's going to have to be both a cultural change and a change of the way that these incentives are functioning um, in order to create AI that's going to make the world a better place. Darka, what are your thoughts on that? So uh, it's kind of important to step back and think about all the different uh, benefits that AI brings to the table as we kind of put the right kind of guardrails around it as well. So let me actually talk about two different aspects to it. So the first one is a true democratization of AI where we have generative AI running directly on devices. You don't have to send all your data to the cloud. You actually directly run it on devices. We've reached a point in time where we can run very large models, not just language models, but also other kinds of models, but very large models directly on devices. So you get the same benefits. 
this goes anywhere from devices that we use. For instance, these could be our smartphones. We talked about smartphones and laptops, but also IoT devices like uh, home security systems and doorbells and water meters and gas meters and whatnot. Now, when we think about running generative AI directly on device, it means that the data stays right there. So we address things like privacy and security, especially when you start thinking of some of the other use cases that come in. This could be medical data that you might want to have very specific usage for. It's easier to build the right kind of guardrails while still getting the benefits from uh, some of these uh, use cases that we talked of. You, when we talk of something uh, uh, as complex a device as a smartphone, truth be told, it's actually not one of the, you know, there is a large cross-section of the population who sometimes find it very hard to to use the smartphone with its full capabilities. And I was just talking about this, and there was someone who mentioned the, the fact that the visually impaired, for instance, are simply unable to use smartphones in the way you and I use. And using generative AI, in fact, voice becomes the most natural interface to some of these extremely complex devices. Just two weeks back, uh, usually we have a summit, uh, which we call a Snapdragon Summit. We showed how you could make an airline reservation by simply speaking to your phone. You just say the fact that I want to go from San Diego to DC, for instance, on a specific day. You're just talking to it. You're not actually opening up any app and it makes it happen for you. It pulls out all the capabilities. It's something I'm sure a lot of, not just visually impaired as an example, but a lot of elderly people can use to as well. So it truly brings about a democratization of AI uh, with it you know, being used by a very large number of people. The other part uh, that has come up uh, is, uh, you know, uh, what about biases and what about other kinds of things that you have to handle? It's also important to understand that, you know, when we talk of these large models that are trained on data, they call this foundational models. Typically, this is data that's publicly available out there. It's a starting point. But then these models, these foundational models, can get fine-tuned with domain-specific data. There's domain-specific data that's available out there. And based upon that data, the models can be fine-tuned further. It's one way in which uh, the overall issues that sometimes do come up with, okay, maybe how do we know that it's doing the right thing? This is one way of actually doing that. So we believe that there are ways of addressing some of the concerns as we take steps going beyond foundational models into, into fine-tuned models. Coming up, we'll talk about how artificial intelligence is shifting industries and its impact on entry-level jobs. I think this is making students really nervous about uh, what the future is going to look like for them. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We are talking about artificial intelligence, and I'm joined by Qualcomm's Durga Malati and Darby Vickers, professor with the University of San Diego. And, you know, Darby, one of the, the fears that people have when it comes to AI 
is it's possible and potential to make certain jobs obsolete. We touched on it uh, before. I'm curious what you hear from your students who will soon be starting their own careers in this new world. My students are concerned. There are a number of different industries that are radically changing in the face of various types of AI, particularly generative AI. Uh, There are significantly fewer jobs doing sort of entry-level writing, for example, because it's relatively easy to get um, a large language model like ChatGPT to generate that kind of data for you. Uh, There's also um, an increase in concern among the software engineers that I teach uh, that a lot of the jobs that they are considering as entry-level positions post-college will be gone someday as well, because um, ChatGPT and other large language models are you know, still imperfect, but are doing relatively well at being able to generate computer code. And there's a concern that a lot of those sort of places where you learn how the industry works and sort of begin your coding career uh, are going to disappear. And uh, instead, there are going to be sort of fewer jobs uh, that are mostly reading and editing code rather than generating the code um, as a human being. In addition to that, there are concerns from students who want to go into the arts um, because generative AI is something that can create images um, and animations and all sorts of other things um, in the future. And there's a lot of concern, um, obviously, with the Writers Guild strike um, and uh, uh, the Animation Guild is working on a set of principles uh, to try to figure out how they're going to deal with generative AI in the future. Um, So there's a lot of concern out there. There are, of course, certain industries that are going to open up in a different way. Um, I am under the impression that uh, some of the sort of difficulties with understanding how to apply intellectual property law um, to uh, things created by generative AI models are going to sort of open up a whole new field of intellectual property law um, in the future for dealing with these kinds of contributions. And uh, there are fields like right now, uh, being a prompt engineer uh, for some of these um, things, although this is probably a short term kind of position uh, and it's not going to be as effective once we get sort of different ways of interfacing with these uh, generative models is a a sort of field that's growing. But there's a real concern um, that has actually been around since the very beginnings of artificial intelligence uh, in the 1950s. that Norbert Wiener voiced uh, really fabulously in a book called The Human Use of Human Beings. The original copy of this book was, was sort of way predated any kind of AI that we interact with. Um, it was written in 1950 and then revised in 1954. And although he got many things wrong, Wiener seems to see what exactly is going on with the stratification of jobs um, as uh, AI becomes a sort of integral part of our daily lives. Um, There are lots of people who create these AI systems and uh, control those AI systems in their deployment, um, who are making large, large amounts of money, which is, you know, true of a lot of the people that come out with expertise in this field. And then the AI systems are doing a lot of these sort of middle level jobs, um, particularly the intellectual jobs of generating certain types of writing. Um, And then uh, we have people that are sort of stuck cleaning up the messes that artificial intelligence is not good at cleaning up in terms of Um, figuring out how to make sure that data that is labeled correctly for supervised learning or checking to make sure uh, that each of the individual pieces are labeled correctly to train a Tesla 
or dealing with um, trying to figure out ways to fine tune the algorithm for large language models to ensure that they don't uh, generate sort of horrifying content um, to uh, users that are inputting something um, and doing that vetting process. So all of these jobs are generally not very well paid um, and they're sort of supporting these AI systems. And we're not having AI as was envisioned by sort of many people who have a utopian vision of AI that are going to do the jobs we really don't want to do, which are things like cleaning and, you know, picking strawberries and doing all the kind of backbreaking labor that people sort of envisioned in the future would be done by robots. So it's causing the labor market to shift in this really strange way that Wiener seemed to envision pretty clearly. And I think this is making students really nervous about uh, what the future is going to look like for them. Durga, how do you see AI impacting the job market, especially in the local tech industry in the coming years? From a purely tech standpoint, if you just take a look at the uh, technology jobs, and if you, you can actually go back a little bit in time, about 20 years or so, when we first started seeing AI making its presence in terms of uh, improving the technology, one thing that kind of was quite clear was that there was uh, a gradual, uh, any field that AI uh, came into, it gradually changed the field with engineers adapting accordingly and making sure that we get the best of both worlds. So it started with things like cameras and computer vision where engineers have spent a lot of time uh, in the past in terms of doing some of the, the work that's necessary for making picture quality much better. And complementing that with uh, uh, with AI, uh, we kind of really improved the overall field of computer vision quite a bit. The same thing went off into audio processing. And we are seeing exactly the next evolution of that as we got into generative AI. Uh, a lot of the times, what we have seen in the tech industry in general is that as new technologies come in, they don't, you know, some of them uh, gradually start by improving what has been done before. But at the end of the day, when you start building the use cases on top of it, it's quite phenomenal in terms of the difference that we end up making. From a pure technology standpoint, even though we are talking of, you know, just in terms of maybe processors or algorithms, but you can actually take another field, uh, which is the field of medicine and biotech in general. Right here in San Diego, if you just take a look at how that field is changing, what used to take an extremely long time uh, to generate, uh, whether it's uh, new kinds of uh, medicine or proteins or vaccines, but any kind of, uh, uh, you know, if you just take a look at the amount of time it used to take to come out with new solutions, that's come down quite dramatically as the field of computational pharmacology has come through. So you're using a lot of AI techniques to complement what's already been done in other fields and coming together. The benefits are quite something. So. From a tech industry standpoint, uh, I see it as a technology which is another piece of the puzzle that you end up using uh, to improve daily lives. That's the way that we see it. And Durga, as someone actively working with this technology, what do you think we get wrong about AI? And also, what do you see as solutions to some of the issues AI has, like uh, biases, as Darby mentioned? Yeah, so I think one of the things that people, when you people get wrong about AI sometimes is the fact that when you kind of take a look at the full scope of uh, what AI brings to the table in some of these uh, segments that I mentioned, whether it's medicine, education, productivity, and so on, it's quite something. There's a lot of people who benefit significantly from it. So the uh, 
positive aspects of uh, AI benefits sometimes don't necessarily are so visible unless you kind of go through it. But it's also probably a little bit of a, okay, it's a, it seems like a very new technology, even though we actually have been living with it for a long enough period of time. So it's about gradually getting adjusted to, okay, this is how this technology is here to stay. And what are the benefits that we get out of that? As people get accustomed to it, there's a certain sense of, okay, then this does have a positive aspect. It's not at all negative because that's what usually people tend to think of it. But coming to the question on, okay, so what are we doing about some of these concerns which are there about data sets and biases and so on? There are several things in play over here, first in academia and in from a regulatory perspective as well. In academia, there's tons of research, and as Qualcomm, we've been quite involved in AI research for a long period of time, for more than a decade. And we've spent some thought in terms of, okay, what are the right set of guardrails that come into play? Now, it's kind of important to understand that, okay, you start with the basics of, well, where is the data coming from? Uh, but there are really three kinds of players when we talk of uh, those who are in the business of bringing AI-based use cases into the market. Those who create the foundational models, which means that uh, they are the ones who originally trained a model based upon a certain amount of data set that was there. Those who bring you know, that technology to life with the underlying processors and the software, that's uh, someone like Qualcomm, we actually do that. And then those who bring the commercial products to the market. So this would be like a, a smartphone OEM who brings this to the market. So there are several roles that the three of us actually play to make sure that we have the right uh, guardrails. But in academia, there's work in terms of, okay, how do you make sure that what kind of tests and qualifications can you put in place so that you make sure that uh, you address uh, any of the concerns on bias and toxicity, for instance. I mean, there are there are guardrails that within academia, there are actually already studies which indicate, okay, these are the following tests that can be done. We've also seen in some regions, for instance, there are additional tests that are usually there. So before you bring a device to the market, you have to go through a certain series of tests and that has additional spot checks on top of what you yourself might be doing. So in that sense, uh, it's a, you know, this is, this is a rapidly emerging field where the right set of guardrails are also being set up. Will we get everything picture perfect on day one? It's hard to say, but at the same time, there's tons of work that's going on in this space. At the end of the day, a lot of us are quite responsible about what we try to bring to the table here with AI. And so our trust is on our own engineering capabilities and the academic capabilities that we have on putting the right set of you know, guardrails in place. I have been speaking with Durga Malati. He is the head of AI for Qualcomm, along with Professor of Philosophy Darby Vickers, who teaches about ethics and AI at the University of San Diego. Thank you both so much for this discussion. Thanks for, Thanks for having us. Coming up, how advancements in artificial intelligence are helping to save lives and prevent wildfires. And so what's nice is the fact that it can look at the cameras all the time, 24-7. That really provides us with that security uh, throughout the day, you know, even through the night. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition.
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We continue our discussion on the subject of artificial intelligence by turning our attention to a new tool being used to find and stop the spread of wildfires. Few natural disasters have become as dangerous for the San Diego region as wildfires. Recent years have produced some of the largest and most destructive ever. And with our changing climate, the dangers of wildfires show no sign of slowing down. Alert California, though, is now using artificial intelligence to identify potential wildfires and it's been receiving national recognition. The tool was recently voted one of the top inventions of 2023 by Time Magazine. A collaboration between UC San Diego and Cal Fire, the AI technology was released this September. It monitors and analyzes data from over 1,000 video cameras placed across California. And here to tell us more about the tool and the impact it's having on wildfire spotting, I'm joined by the director of Alert California, Neil Driscoll. He is also a professor of geology with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Neil, welcome. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today is Suzanne Leininger, intelligence specialist with the San Diego unit of CAL FIRE. Suzanne, welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you both. So, Neil, congratulations on having Alert California make the list of Time Magazine's top inventions. Can you help us understand the technology and why it is so groundbreaking? What we had is we had over 70 million images of smoke. So machine learning is only as good as the data quality and data amount that you feed it. So we're constantly training it so it would be able to better discern smoke columns from the marine layer or a dust devil or a farmer kicking up dust as he's plowing over his fields. So here, the, the breakthrough came that we're using our own cameras. We're able to spin them every two minutes. We're able to take six frames and, and the AI can say, something has changed in this frame. You should look at it. So what it does is it alerts people in, in the ECC that something has changed and this is a camera you should look at. So it, it removes noise, it allows focus, it uh, reduces watch standard fatigue. But the main thing was, we always talk about this public-private partnership. Our industrial uh, industry partner is Digital Path on this. And it was a great interaction of the two of us to get to where we are now, where we could start testing it and get independent feedback from Cal Fire. So I think the real strength of this platform is that we trained it on excellent quality data, 70 million images. The cameras were moved over 7,000 times during this interval. And then we have the vetting by Cal Fire, the subject matter experts that can feedback to the AI and say, no, that isn't fire, or yes, that is fire. So it's really, this partnership is really exciting. And I think that our, others are recognizing the power of this approach and employing it also. And break that down for me. You've mentioned machine learning and, and training. Um, so tell me, how is artificial intelligence used in Alert California? And how does machine learning play into that? 
So the machine learning is what you teach the the instrument to learn from, and then the artificial intelligence is applying it to new data, looking at it, looking at all of the records it has, all of the information that's been fed to it, and it says, I believe that this is a fire cloud, and it's a threat, an ignition. We're looking at smoke. And then the beauty of this system is that we can spin the cameras, we can look at that, we can focus in, and our subject matter experts can say to the AI, and it's binary, they can say, yes, that is smoke, or no, it's not. And then what's really important is the camera system with the AI, with the anomalies, it takes everything together and it allows for the dispatcher to scale the response up or down based on what they see. So I think more important than beating 911 calls, and we have a number of records that we have. Sometimes we've actually suppressed the fire and they're back in the firehouse with no 911 calls. But it's not that that I think is the crucial step forward. It's the situational awareness um, actionable real-time data. So they're able to confirm that, yes, this is smoke and ignition, but what does it look like? How fast is it spreading? What is the color of the smoke? Is it bent over? So all of a sudden, all of that information that might have taken 20 minutes to an hour to get a battalion out there and eyes on the fire now can be done within seconds. Wow. And Suzanne, um, you know, one of the groups involved with Alert California is Cal Fire. Can you talk about how this new technology is helping? We can now see from the ACC what is going on, on in the field. And uh, for example, the Highland Fire, when that started, we could actually see that that was really low to the ground and that the wind was on it and it, it had a lot of wind and it was blowing it to the west. Uh, today we had a fire that was much smaller and we could it, it got a, more of a straight up column on it and we could tell that there wasn't a lot of wind on it and it wasn't spreading very fast. So it can give us information and, and time is fire. So as soon as we can get that information, the better our response can be. And this works at night too, right? 100%. And so what's nice about this is this is 24-7 patrolling basically and every camera all the time. And that's not something that's really possible for humans to do, or at least very uh, easily and uh, inexpensively. And so what's nice is the fact that it can look at the cameras all the time, 24-7. That really provides us with that security uh, throughout the day, you know, even through the night. I'd like to just say that this system is the holy grail of interoperability. And the reason I say that is, when we have fires up north and we move some of our people, our brave firefighters up there to augment the effort, they don't have to learn a new platform. They don't even have to learn where the cameras are or the camera names. So the AI, it identifies that this is potential smoke. Please check it out. But it also says, based on my digital elevation model, these are the seven cameras that can actually see that smoke without obstruction of view. That is so important because when you move to a new area, you're not going to immediately be familiar with all the camera names. We have 1,060 cameras, but the AI says, pick this one, pick this one. These are the seven that can potentially see the fire. 
and we can estimate along the line of the camera where the fire is. But with all of these cameras now, we can triangulate and the location of the fire is much better defined. So the AI is not just doing initial, this might be a smoke column. It's also providing the user the ease of verifying that with the cameras at hand. Hmm. Can you both talk about the impact this technology has had in the field more? I mean, has the time to find potential fires gone down as a result? 100%. And what's what's nice about this is before, if the smoke was small, and we usually we would always wait for the 911 call because we wouldn't get this kind of alert beforehand. And if, if the smoke was small for the at that time, it can take a while to actually find that smoke and find the right camera to actually to locate that location. So the CAL FIRE goal and mission is to keep all wildland fires below 10 acres. So this is definitely in support of that. And it really can get us out there much faster. And Neil, this tool was rolled out this past September, but Alert California has been around for a lot longer than that. Um, Can you tell us about how it got started? This is our third generation We started in 2000 with funding from the National Science Foundation. And HP Wren was the platform uh, that we were using then. And for the Cedar Fire in 2003, they were able to bring wireless connectivity out to the field. So firefighters in the ECC could share their knowledge and vision of what the fire was doing. And the Cedar Fire burnt over 270,000 acres We just celebrated uh, the 20th anniversary. I I don't want to say celebrated. We acknowledged the hardship and and devastation, the loss of life that happened uh, 20 years ago. But I'll tell you this, that the second generation, we was funded by our collaborators here, San Diego Gas and Electric, and they helped fund the the new pan-tilt zoom cameras near infrared. And we got them in and we had the lilac fire. And Chief Meacham said it changed his response. There was a fire on the border that he had been sending battalions to. He diverted them to the lilac fire because he could see from Booker camera that's on Palomar that the the smoke was bent over. It was racing through areas like Rancho Montserrat and the downs there, the horses, uh, the San Luis downs. And so all of a sudden, right out of the box, 2017, these cameras had impact. And now we've grown to an all hazard. So we work with Cal OES, Cal Fire, to monitor areas of landslides, like the terrible Montecito slide that happened about five years ago, entombed 23 people overnight. So here, we're a multi-hazard platform. We have developed interoperability. We work with Cal chiefs. We work with Western chiefs. We work with the utilities. The thing I'd like to emphasize, we have developed the California village and and Cal Fire has been instrumental in helping us move the needle. So thank you. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm speaking with Neil Driscoll and Suzanne Leininger about the wildfire spotting technology Alert California, which was recently named as one of the top inventions of 2023 by Time magazine. 
Uh, Suzanne, to kind of pick up where we just left off, California has experienced devastating fires in recent years. I think more than half of the largest wildfires in the state occurred uh, in just the last five years or so. Can you talk about wildfire risk in our region and, and how it has been changing? There's always, always risk. And with climate change, it's it's continues to be an issue. We get up until this last year, we had, you know, we've had a lot of rain this past year, but that's very atypical. I would not expect that to continue uh, beyond this year. And I think that it's just always a risk and we should all be aware of it. And, and one of the things I have to say is in San Diego County that people are, I feel they're pretty hyper aware. And so anytime that there is smoke, we do get 911 calls. So it's, it's rather rare that we don't, but these cameras are here to help. And I can tell you that we, we just can't let our guard down and uh, we can use any help that we can get. And Neil, I think one common fear about the rise of AI is that people may lose their jobs as a result. Um, is that something you all thought about while working on adding artificial intelligence to Alert California? Or is it that um, now there's an opportunity to allocate those resources somewhere else? In my experience, I do not see the AI displacing subject matter experts, such as Cal Fire firefighters. So. That line, I think what it does is it shifts where we have operations and where we have resources, but there's so many other things that are going on in this extreme climate. And you just look at Libya or you look at some of these areas that get their whole rainfall budget in one storm. And so now these engender landslides like the McKinney fire, um, was hit in August with rainfall and sediment dispersal into the Klamath River caused anoxia and, and huge fish kill off. So here, the AI and cameras are being used for all hazards. And, and the one hazard we haven't spoke about yet today, which is what I think is the largest hazard that California is facing, is earthquakes. And many of the faults that Tom Jordan from Southern California, uh, you know, um, would tell you that many of these faults, their open period is longer than their recurrence interval, which means that the probability of an earthquake gets higher. And these earthquakes are modeled like in the haywired model um, by Cal OES, spawn hundreds of fires. So having uh, networks that can have us triage and, and use data to drive decisions, I don't think it's going to take away from firefighters. I think it's going to add all new firefighters with uh, some being more on the technological operational side, some being in the resource side and mapping vegetation before these events. How do we manage these fires? The Mosquito Fire was a great example of marginal forest management. The tree die-off and mortality in those regions was less than where there, it wasn't performed. We're learning so much. Um, and I, I think it's a, a really bright day for how we're going to move forward and try to use data to drive decisions and, and make better decisions so that we, uh, we, we can manage these fires without them getting to be mega fires. 
Yeah. And Suzanne, to sort of show how much of an impact this AI is having, can you talk a bit about how wildfire spotting was done um, before having access to this technology? Basically waiting for the 911 call and um, waiting until the first engine got on scene. And, um, you know, this tool for for us is also a way to keep the firefighters safer. And I can tell you, I spent some time out of the country on a fire that did not have this technology. And it was amazing how blind we were without a camera system. And what they rely on, they they really rely on the 911 calls. And it's to me, this is the fact that we can see this from the ECC. The duty chief can see this, what's going on. And the resources that are heading out to the fire, they can get a, a really good idea what's going on before they even get here, get there. And the the primary focus for that is the safety of the firefighters and the first responders that get out there. So this is a win in that situation. And I don't think anybody on the fire side feels threatened by this. I think they're, they welcome this as a tool for their safety. Yeah. And, you know, as we've talked about, Alert California has more than a thousand cameras spread across California. Is there a larger vision to share this technology with other states or other countries? I mean, what's next here? So here um, I'm in touch with Hawaiian Electric and some of our sponsors like Southern California Edison. Uh, I've worked closely with them and trying to set up a platform that will give them capabilities that we have here in California. The EU is interested, Spain is interested, Canada is interested. So here, I think that the combination of CAL FIRE with the University of California, San Diego, made that quantum leap. We really moved uh, much faster than we had thought. I never thought would be at this position so quickly as I started this process and I'm the founder of Alert California. And I'm proud that we've all listened to each other, been respectful, and we've learned each other's skill sets so that we can communicate because the communication has to be there. And I think the point that Suzanne brought up is is crucial. And I, I hadn't heard that story, Suzanne, that you know you were in a situation where the technology exists, but it wasn't employed. And I, I, I've watched firefighters hold the line right here on Rancho Bernardo and the Rich Fire. Hmm. A tough job. I, I don't know how they do it. They walk into fire. Yeah. Yeah. Suzanne, anything you want to add to that? And this camera system gives us the ability to see what they're going towards. You know, most people run away from fire. Firefighters run toward it. <laughs> and if we can give them a better picture of what they're walking towards. It just really helps everybody involved. Well, we look forward to seeing this technology save lives. I've been speaking to Neil Driscoll, director of Alert California, along with Suzanne Leininger, intelligence specialist for the San Diego unit of Cal Fire. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having us.
In what ways is artificial intelligence impacting your life? Give us a call at 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. We'd love to share your ideas and experiences here on the show. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.